What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Kind World. I'm Andrea Aswahe. And I'm Yasmin Amr. This week, we've got a real treat for our listeners. A story of kindness, compassion, and connection from WBUR and the New York Times' Modern Love, the podcast. We'll hand it off to host Meghna Chakrabarty. When we take stock of the people who matter most to us, there are the spouses, the family members, the best friends, the partners. And then there are the people who aren't any of those things, but who change our lives anyway. Emily Robito's essay is about one of those people. It's read by Lake Bell, who has starred in It's Complicated, In a World, and Wet Hot American Summer. You can see her now in Bless This Mess on ABC. No one goes into a move expecting to fall for her mover. I was no exception. This was back in October 2001, when people advertised their services by taping flyers to lamp posts among signs for the 9-11 missing. That's where I found Derek's number, which I called in secret while my boyfriend was getting sloshed at whatever Brooklyn dive sold the cheapest drinks. We were being evicted from our apartment, a a third-floor walk-up over a check-cashing store. My boyfriend, normally a sad drunk, had trashed the place. Our landlord was wise to sever ties with him. I was too insecure to do the same. He was my high school sweetheart and best friend, but living together was wearing me out. I decided to move in with a girlfriend. I told Derek all this during our first phone call. To his enduring credit, the mover didn't find this strange. A lot of couples were splitting up in the aftermath of 9-11, he said. Fleeing the city for the suburbs or, like me, just running to another borough. Even though breakups and divorces were good for his business, Derek seemed genuinely sorry our pain. I liked his voice. As gentle as a funeral director's. Rather than itemize the things my boyfriend had broken, I told Derek about how rotten my last moving experience had been. The movers had refused to unpack the cargo van until I paid them double their initial quote. How do I know you won't do me dirty like they did? I asked. 
It was an indirect way of describing my problem with my boyfriend. Derek said exactly what I needed to hear. I didn't deserve to be treated badly. Guys like that, he said, gave good guys a bad name. Derek promised he would treat me and my stuff with respect. I was working my way through graduate school. His fee was a sliding scale. Did $300 sound fair? It did. My belongings when I was 25 consisted of eight or ten boxes of books, a glad bag full of clothes, an aloe plant, and a spindly end table rescued from the curb that on humid days smelled of dog pee. Derek showed up on moving day at dawn with a ten-foot truck and an assistant named Robin. This made me think of him as Batman. (laughs) His uniform was a Hanes undershirt with plaid flannel overlay, a black weightlifter's belt, work boots, jeans, and a driving cap. Tucked into the belt like a grappling hook was a heavy-duty packaged tape dispenser. He was probably only five years older than me, but seemed substantially more adult. I fantasized about hugging him. He'd come to rescue me from a lousy situation and transport me to a better one, I didn't like seeing myself as a damsel in distress, but there I stood, tearful and spent, fully dependent on Derek's muscle. My boyfriend had scuttled off without helping to pack a thing. A coffee splatter marked the wall where he smashed a mug when I asked for space. You did the hard part, Derek said, lifting a box. Now leave the rest to me. I guessed it was his trademark line, but it did the trick. It made me feel secure. As he carried me off to my new place in the West Village, Derek told me that what he enjoyed most about his job, apart from meeting different kinds of people, was the puzzle of fitting things in the truck so they wouldn't break. He reassured me that I wasn't as fragile as I felt that day. He said I was moving on up, like the Jefferson's theme song. True, I could now boast a Manhattan address, but my new place was no deluxe apartment in the sky. It was a tomb-sized, illegal sublet on A Street over a shoe store for drag queens. Although my roommate, Chastity, could have drunk my boyfriend under the table. I knew she'd never destroy the place. All the quality furniture belonged to her. This place is great, Derek said, admiring the high ceilings. The kitchen was a nook with two burners. Two separate closets housed the toilet and shower. My bedroom window was cloudier than a cataract. To free up some floor space, I set my bookshelf on my dresser and my TV atop the flimsy IKEA wardrobe. Chastity and I sat on the floor, craning our necks to watch romantic comedies with plates of greasy takeout balanced on our laps. Sometimes my boyfriend showed up, sometimes I let him in. Two months later, a neighbor tipped off the landlord that neither Chastity nor I were on the lease. I called Derek for a second time. We needed to move back to Brooklyn pronto. 
As he lugged our things down the stairs, I admired the solidity of his boots, his meaty hands, and his job. More than that, I appreciated his sunny disposition. Great job, ladies, he said, surveying our new railroad apartment. You're going to be really happy here. Couldn't he see the unpainted plywood doors, the mold blackening the bathroom grout? We lived one block from the soda bar, where Chastity increasingly spent her time. One night, I woke to discover a man standing naked over my bed, having lost his way back to her room from the toilet, his pupils dilated by cocaine. And that's how I stopped living with Chastity. I called Derek a third time, and he delivered me deeper into Brooklyn, to an apartment in Flatbush, cluttered with empty wild turkey bottles and battered musical equipment. I was moving back in with my boyfriend. If this arrangement struck Derek as a step down, he was too polite to say so. I panicked when he left. I panicked again a few months later when, on our 10th anniversary, my boyfriend proposed with an imitation sapphire ring. He'd bought it at a jewelry store with a neon sign that flashed, We buy old gold. The ring was too small for my finger. I said okay because I was afraid to say no. Within a year, I sold my first book, gotten a job, and bought some decent furniture. I'd also finally gathered the courage to tell my boyfriend I couldn't marry him. Of course, all of these changes correlated to one another. The relationship deteriorated when I told my boyfriend he'd make a lousy dad. Eventually, he moved out, leaving nothing behind but a half-deflated basketball. For the fourth time, I called Derek. I was proud to show him I'd bounce back. Rent on my new one-bedroom apartment in Harlem was $1,000 a month. That I could afford to pay it myself made me feel grown up. The move took all day and was complicated by a shoot of law and order on my block. Derek didn't grumble about having to park his truck on another street. He cheerfully lugged my possessions up five flights, congratulated me on the condition of the hardwood floors, and overlooked the mouse holes in the baseboards. He stacked my last box at dusk, toweled off his face, and smiled. You made it he said. I hadn't always believed I'd land in a solid place, but Derek had. Now I had a profession, a residence, and some confidence. Only one thing was missing. Maybe because of the film set outside, I suddenly saw my plot resolving like one of those romantic comedies Chastity and I used to binge on. Could Derek be... The one? Over the years, he'd become my model of a good man. I even liked the smell of his sweat. I bought us fried fish sandwiches at a nearby seafood joint. As we ate, sitting on book boxes, I considered asking him out on a date. I didn't. 
I felt too shy. Also, I'd been with my boyfriend since I was 16. I needed to mess around a little before dating seriously, and Derek wasn't right for that. I felt too much affection for him. I kissed him on the cheek, trusting we'd see each other again. Apart from my ex's old basketball, he wouldn't accept a tip. Whatever I paid him was less than he deserved, and less than he gave me. After living comfortably alone for a spell, I started seeing a man who shared Derek's decency, optimism, and build. Three years later, he moved in with me. Once we agreed to pool our belongings, our hang-ups, and our dreams, we got engaged and bought an apartment. I assumed Derek would move us into it. Like any new homeowner, I wanted to show off my nest. And I wanted Derek's approval of both apartment and fiancé. Mostly, I wanted to thank him for insisting I could be happy. But my mover was nowhere to be found. We hired other movers who were brusque but efficient. Once they'd gone, the man I married hoisted me roughly over the threshold. It was as if he could never imagine I was someone who could break. That's Lake Bell reading Emily Roboteau's essay, The Wisdom of the Moving Man. You can see her now in Bless This Mess on ABC. More from Emily after this. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Emily Roboteau says that in this piece, she wasn't interested in telling a traditional love story. It's kind of an exercise in misdirection, because you think Derek is the love object, I'll wind up with him, but I didn't. Really, the reason I loved this guy was that he was a gifted caretaker, and that's really rare in his business. But it wasn't the kind of love that was going to resolve in a typical way or kind of story. It was a kind of love where... He just was really good at performing a job in a way that made me feel safe and held at times where I felt insecure and like I didn't know where I was going to wind up. But Emily hasn't heard from Derek in years. I did hear from someone who said Derek had moved back to Estonia, where he's originally from, and that he operates a food truck now and has a family. He was a, a really major character during several chapters of my life, but he probably doesn't remember me at all. 
When we talked to her, Emily told us more about the last line of her essay, where she describes her husband hoisting her roughly across the threshold of their new home, as if he never imagined that she was someone who could break. We asked her what was behind that line. She says it came from her history with her ex-boyfriend. After 9-11, like, his alcoholism spiked. He trashed our apartment. That's probably a lot, like, just one toss-away line in that essay. But what that looked like, I mean, just what that looked like was that he broke everything. He broke all of my possessions. Like, he broke the chairs. He crashed, you know, he threw things against the wall. Um, now I'm getting emotional. Yeah, because it actually was behind that last line, you know. Yeah, I felt like he was trying to break me, too. And that relationship influenced how Emily saw herself. I thought about myself as being extremely vulnerable, especially in relation to other men, by which I mean um, I've been in an abusive relationship. And so I had a sense of myself as being perhaps vulnerable or fragile because it was so difficult to extricate myself from that relationship. And Derek was a person, this this is maybe really why I loved him, because every time he came into my life to move me, like, out of the apartment that I shared with that boyfriend or back into, like, the next apartment that I shared with that boyfriend or out of it again, he always was telling me, you're going to be okay. And not only are you going to be okay, but you're okay already. He was an optimist, in other words, and his optimism was infectious. And my husband, the man I married... He's also like that. And he didn't have a story about me as somebody who'd been abused or stuck in a relationship with an alcoholic, but rather as somebody who was okay and who was going to be okay and who was on an awesome path that he wanted to share. For someone like Derek, they see so much, like, you know, this emotional thing I just revealed, like, that's their job to see messy life like that over and over and over again. Or they say moving is up there as a stressful moment in people's lives, along with death and public speaking. But a lot of the time people are moving because something good has happened. But a lot of the time they're moving because something terrible has happened. Now Emily and her family are in the process of moving again, this time for a good reason. They're moving out of the apartment where she gave birth to their two children. I just hired a painter, and he'll be painting over the pencil marks in the kitchen door frames where I measured their growth, which makes me a little sad. But our family outgrew that place, just as I outgrew all those other apartments when I was single that Derek moved me out of. And I would like for him to see the next place, just because I know he'd say, you know, he'd say something nice about me moving up again that would make me feel good. That's Emily Robito. She's the author of several books, including Searching for Zion, The Quest for Home in the African Diaspora. She lives with her husband and two children in New York City and is working on a new book about the superintendent of a New York apartment building. Modern Love is a production of The New York Times and WBUR, Boston's NPR station. It's produced, directed, and edited by Caitlin O'Keefe, Original scoring and sound design by Matt Reed. Iris Adler is the executive producer. 
Daniel Jones is the editor of Modern Love for the New York Times and advisor to the show. The idea for the Modern Love podcast was conceived by Lisa Tobin, and Meghna Chakrabarty is the host. Mark your calendars because we'll be back with all new full episodes of Kind World in October. Until then, keep in touch by subscribing to our newsletter called The Care Package. It's kindness delivered straight to your inbox every Saturday morning. Sign up on our website, wbur.org slash kindworld. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.